0: Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to again, again to come, come another evening, Lord, to to listen to uh, Dr. Heck speak to, speak to us about uh, about you, Lord, and pray that she would do that in a way that's sensitive to what you want to say through her and through what she has studied, Lord, to, uh, to see just what it means uh, to recognize you as the, the Lord of heaven and earth. And so we just ask, Lord, that each one of us would be just a blank slate tonight, Lord, that you could... Impress upon us what it is you want us to know that we would leave tonight different than when we came. We must commit this time to you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's hard to believe that this is week number five. So now we are going more deeply into the New Testament. And tonight we will spend time in the book of Acts. Last week we looked in the Gospels to see where God is referred to as Lord or Creator of Heaven and Earth, and we found that there was really just one one occasion, that's a prayer of Yeshua, that's recorded both in Matthew 11 and Luke 10, where Yeshua refers to God as Father and Lord of Heaven and Earth. And... Um, describes his unique relationship with the Father as the Son and the role that the Father has given him as the revealer of who the Father is to other people. And then we looked in Colossians and Hebrews to see how the early church also has this understanding of Yeshua as the, the image of God and the exact representation of the Father. And so in that way, he does reveal who the Father is um, in the fullest sense. So tonight, what we're going to do, though, is look at a couple of passages in Acts where we see this description of God as Creator of heaven and earth's surface. And there are there are actually three key passages in Acts that have this description of God. One is in chapter four and it is in the prayer of the community of believers in Jerusalem. And as we saw in the Gospels with Yeshua's prayer, and then in the Old Testament, the context of prayer is typical. It's not unusual for this description of God. But then we also see this description show up in two speeches by Paul. And they are two speeches to predominantly Gentile audiences. And when I noticed this, one of them is in chapter 14 when he's in Lystra, with the other is when he's in Athens, Acts 17. And the question that crossed my mind when I realized that that's how Paul is describing the God of Israel to these Gentiles, these Torah illiterate people, I thought, why that description of God versus any other? Because there are lots of ways that God is described in the Old Testament. So what's significant about that one in in light of sharing uh, the gospel? So we're going to look at just one of those passages tonight because there's so much in each one of them. (laughs) I thought, whew, yeah, we would need a couple more hours, I think, to do both of them. So we'll look at the prayer in chapter 4 and then uh, Paul's short speech in Acts 14. But before we get there, I just wanted to highlight a couple of things. And many many of you may already know this, but the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote Acts. And so some scholars will talk about Luke and Acts as two volumes of the same work, or some will even say it's one continuous uh, work because it was written just in two parts by the same person. But when you look thematically at what Luke is doing as an author through his gospel and through Acts, there's really some nice continuity between the two. Now, of course, the gospel is dealing with the life and ministry of Yeshua, and Acts is dealing with the life and ministry of the early church and taking the gospel of Yeshua, starting from Jerusalem, going into Judea and Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. As Yeshua commanded them to do in Acts 1 8. But several scholars will recognize that a unifying theme for Luke and Acts is the topic of the plan of God. So, as we've been talking since the first week that we got together, there is an overarching narrative from Genesis to Revelation. This is God's story that is unfolding. And he uses human authors along the way, and each one of those authors is writing to a certain audience as well. But because God is the sovereign author of all of it, there's continuity across the whole canon. Well, when we get into Luke and Acts, there is a particular tightness in continuity there, I think, thematically. And we see the plan of God being unfolded um, very nicely in these two works. The other thing I wanted to point out when it comes to the life and ministry of Yeshua, Matthew does an interesting thing. If you look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 and then Matthew 9, verse 37, verse 35, excuse me. What you see are two verses that are saying essentially the same thing about the life of Yeshua and his ministry. And in literary terms, we call this an inclusio. Basically, an author will use a a thought or a theme in one place and then repeat that thought or theme in another place, and that helps the readers to know that what comes in between relates to that, that topic, what it is. And we see that in Matthew. If we look at 4.23... It says, Yeshua went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then when we look at Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, Yeshua went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And then what we have in Matthew between those two bookends, so to speak, chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, very elaborate teaching, preaching about the kingdom. And then after that, we have several miracles that Jesus, or Yeshua, does in his ministry. So these two elements are primary to Yeshua's life and ministry, preaching, the gospel or the kingdom about the kingdom of God, and healing, doing miracles. So when we get to the early church, and in particular, this, in, in particular this prayer in chapter 4, we see these same two dynamics at work in the early church as they are preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God. So what I want us to do is look in chapter 3 and then chapter 4 and highlight some themes that are going on as we get up to the prayer of the believers at the end of chapter 4, verses 23 to about, well, the passage will go to about 29. So what we see happening really with this prayer is It is the culmination of a series of events that happens primarily involving John and Peter at this point in Jerusalem that starts in chapter 3. So if we go to the beginning of chapter 3, the first few verses, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who are going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give, what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach of, of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, again, there's a lot more details to this story. What we see happen, though, is um, the people, when they see what happens, and again, this is in Jerusalem, this is in the temple courts, this is a Jewish audience. When they see what happens... They're confused about who, who performed this miracle. We jump down to verse 12. Peter, when he sees their response, he says to them, people of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Yeshua. So the, the audience here is unsure. They think John and, and Peter are the ones who made this man walk, and they make it clear, oh, no, no, this is the God, our, our God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is, has healed them, and in the name of Yeshua. It, that way, though. it appears that, uh-huh. they, that they did do that. Which is why there was confusion that they needed to clar- clarify, yeah. clear up. But then in verse 16, again, Peter makes clear, by faith in the name of Yeshua, this man whom you see and know, has made, uh, was made strong. And then in verse 19, he, he says to the audience, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now last week, I think it was, or the year before, we talked about this idea of turning to God or turning away from idols. And we see this idea repeated. We'll hear it up, come up again in a couple other places. So he's calling them to turn to God in repentance, um, and putting their, to put their faith in Yeshua. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Yeshua. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. So now again, we've got Peter emphasizing what? the words of God, that he is going to bring restoration, and he's pointing forward to a time when God will restore all things. We get, jump down into verse 26, when God raised up his servant, meaning Yeshua, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Now again, this idea of the message of salvation going first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles is something that we see Paul carrying on, the same pattern. Even though Paul and Barnabas are sent to reach the Gentiles, they always go to the Jews first in every community and then spread the gospel to the Gentiles. They never abandon that approach. And we see Peter is is making that same emphasis. So then when we get into chapter 4 we find out that some of the Jewish leaders are upset (laughs) with Peter and with John. In verse 2, it says they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Yeshua the resurrection from the dead. They're not liking this message about Yeshua. Jump down to um, verse 10. It says, again, Peter is addressing them the rulers and elders now. It is by the name of Yeshua HaMashiach of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So again, this this guy who got healed is still the center of this controversy because that's related to the, the problem that these leaders are having. Oh no, these guys are preaching about Yeshua raised from the dead and look, <laughs> they're being credited for healing this guy. This is not looking good for them because they lose their power. Position. There you go. <laughs> they have not yet embraced Yeshua. But, Peter goes on in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So again, I this is, I don't know how much more clear Peter can get that faith in Yeshua is the key to salvation. And it is because of Yeshua that this man has walked. So what we see happen is this physical healing is kind of a visual indication of the salvation that has come to this man. And in the first century, salvation had a broad meaning that it would encompass not just a spiritual salvation like we tend to think of it, but it would would touch on other areas of life too. And so physical healing is a reflection of the spiritual reality. Was it more physical? to salvation in the first century. or you know, when you're going towards salvation, when I are thinking about salvation, was it more physical than spiritual? Is my question. I don't want to say it's more one or the other. Again, I think you know, even in a, a Jewish viewpoint or worldview or way of looking at life, things were all connected, very more holistic. It was. I think, later thought in other cultures that kind of tend to separate out Mm -hmm. the intellect, emotions, will. And and then we see Gnosticism arise into the second and third century that basically say anything that's spiritual is good, anything that's material is bad, and there's even a greater dichotomy between the two. Yeah, and I don't think that's really what we're seeing here. So salvation is a little, it's more holistic, but it's definitely rooted in... um, Connection to the Creator and being in a right relationship with the Creator. You know, these guys you were know, just, I'm just thinking about it from their perspective of what it would have appeared like. You can't mention Yeshua's name because you get thrown out of synagogue. That was number one, that everybody knew about that. Well, and that's what's happening here. That they are getting persecuted and taken before the court and then they're thrown out. Mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to do that. Was a Nobody's supposed to mention his name because you would be thrown out. And then these guys are healed and he's talking about Yeshua, and it's like, he was crucified. Where is he? I mean, just the thought of that suit just kind of is puzzling from a human perspective. And he was talking to these people, and yet they're trying to connect these dots. And that was a We know he's dead, we know he's dead. but we don't know where his body's at, and you telling me salvation in his name? Help mm-hmm. yeah, we understand this, and I can see why they were angry with him, but then I can also understand that the spiritual portion of it too, mm-hmm. because I'm seeing it from hindsight view. Mm-hmm. But, but, you, but for them, I can understand how they were feeling like right then. The non-believing Jews, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this would be rocking their world. And this is—I mean, remember, this is Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where Yeshua was on trial, mm-hmm. but nobody found the body. Yes. So now you've got his followers who had run away and abandoned Yeshua. Yes. Now they're back in Jerusalem, boldly proclaiming that he is raised from the dead. So you see that the resurrection really is a central piece of the message of salvation. what we have, let's get get over to the prayer towards the end of the the chapter now, though. So, uh, Peter, again, you know, was addressing addressing the leaders. Um, Verse 21, after further threats, they let let them go, um, Peter and John. Uh, They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. (laughs) For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. He was ancient. (laughs) <laughs> I know, yeah, let's not, well, we'll just kind of pass right over that one, there you go, Floyd, relax, it's okay, yeah, <laughs> I know, okay, so, verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavenly. And the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If we just pause right there, again, some repeated themes that we've been highlighting as we go through these. They address God as sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them. The action of God is mentioned. And then you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant. So again, God's actions and his words are really things that confirm that he is who he says he is, the living, true God. And again, this is always in contrast to idols that can do nothing, say nothing, accomplish nothing, can't save anybody. And that this is all, even this conspiracy against Yeshua the Anointed they did what, what your power, verse twenty-eight. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So this persecution, this pushback, God knew that that would happen. That's all. That's all. It's not outside His plan. Then we go on to verse twenty-nine. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable Your servants to do what? To speak Your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Yeshua. So now we see, okay, if this were me at this time, my prayer would probably look a little different, I think. (laughs) At least in my flesh, I want to say, Lord, help us, protect us, strike down our enemies. (laughs) Well, and thankfully I'm not the only one who thought like that. There are people in the Old Testament who kind of prayed along those lines, too. But here the believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. And their prayer is, Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So again, it's going back to the word of God. And now he is at, they are asking him to act by his hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. Again, God's word and God's miracles. God to now, the same, the same things that were true about the ministry of Yeshua, preaching and performing miracles, they're now beseeching the Lord to enable them to carry on that same ministry. Preaching the message of the kingdom and salvation, and then demonstrating that this is really of God through his power at work in them and through them. And then after that, in verse 31, it says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And this this um, occurrence of the place shaking is like a divine confirmation that God will answer this prayer, that he's pleased with this prayer. We see a similar thing happen. Do you know where else? Mount Sinai. Yes. It's when God gives his word, the Ten Commandments. They shake. <laughs> the presence of God is there. So it's a, in a sense it's, it's confirming his presence with them to carry forth what he's done. And if you look at the wording of the way that they're addressing God as the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, the wording in that in, in Greek is very similar to the wording in the Greek Old Testament at Exodus 20 verse 11 the Ten Commandments, where they're describing God as the maker of heaven and earth and sea and everything in him. And in that passage, it is a call for the people of Israel to observe the Lord's commandments. And what are the first two commandments? a call to worship the one true God and to turn away from any other so-called gods or or idols and not to make images. You know, being reminded that he is the creator of heaven and earth was always something that set him apart because those idols that they were worshipping on that time period that were around, they could even come close to and that was really something that distinguished one. Everybody. When he said the maker of creator of heaven and earth, you know you're things you, you got running around, you don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. true. That's right. Like, yeah. This is who we're talking about. Yeah. There's one person who made heaven and earth. Only one. There's yeah. no no competition, there are no cohorts, there is nobody else that even comes close. That was a distinguishing, that's what I remember him as. Everything makes you different. Well, it, it was kind of like when <laughs> Paul says, oh, I see you've got a young measure to the unknown God. Let me tell you that. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And if we you know, if we had the time to go into Acts 17, yeah. we would see that. And what we are going to see, though, in Chapter 14 are some similar ideas about this ignorance, the the way of the nations. So They know something, but... Yep, they don't know. <laughs> yes, that's true. They know there's something missing, in other words. Yes. So what I would like to suggest to you then is just as Yeshua's prayer in Luke 10 and Matthew 11 that we looked at last week is pivotal to Luke's account of Yeshua's life and ministry, so the prayer in Acts 4, I think, is pivotal in the account of the life and ministry of the early church in establishing the fact that what is being rejected is the plan of God, the creator of heaven and earth. Because remember, these are this is the Jewish community that they've just had this confrontation with. And so I think the fact that in this prayer, the believers are appealing again to the Lord who has created everything, goes back to this idea that the one who is Lord of everyone is the one whose plan is unfolding and is the one who has raised up the anointed through whom we have salvation and there will be a restoration that we're looking forward to. But even among the people of Israel, they still needed to turn. To repent and see that this is truly the anointed one. And again, you can't, I I can't blame them for having such a hard time getting this because it just blew their categories. And in the first century, there were at least half a dozen or more ideas of what Messiah would look like. So Yeshua was very radical in his time. But I think that again is why preaching the word and then this demonstration, affirmation of the word being true through signs and miracles was so important. That's true for today. We are still clueless today. But we're still. To to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really true. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's some, something that I I heard a long time ago, and I think is really true, is that we as believers need to preach the gospel to one another. We need to remind one another what is the basis of our relationship with the God of the universe? Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy for us to be distracted by the ways of the world, also. Yeah. And start to think, well, I needed Yeshua to be saved to get into (laughs) the heaven, but now that I'm here, it's up to me then to live the perfect life and to you know toe the line. Uh, No, so we need to remind each other because this this is a supernatural paradigm. It's not a natural paradigm. We tend towards what's natural to us. That's why we need the Spirit of God to renew us to transform our. our our innermost being and our minds and our thoughts to be able to live in this reality. Well, that was the message accompanied by miracle preached to the Jewish audience. Now we're going to move into Acts 13, and we're going to see some parallel events with taking the message of the kingdom and salvation accompanied by miracle to the Gentiles now. So turn with me to chapter 13, because in Acts 13 and 14 we have the what we call the first missionary journey of Paul, and it is it's the first of three that are recorded in uh, in Acts. So when we look at the beginning of chapter 13 the first few verses, it says, In the church at Antioch, now this is Syrian Antioch. There's another Antioch that we'll look at, too, in this chapter. It's Pisidian Antioch. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then it lists several of them. Barnabas being listed first, and then at the end of the list, Saul, who will be Paul in the course of this first missionary journey. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now this is really (laughs) pretty remarkable that Luke is making clear. This is the Holy Spirit who has chosen Barnabas and, and Saul for this mission they're about to go on. And it's the Holy Spirit who sent them. And again, I think that is reflective of the fact that this is part of God's plan that is unfolding, and it is the Holy Spirit who is directing. So what we get at the end of chapter 14 is the conclusion, the concluding comments, starting in verse 26 of chapter 14 in Acts From Antillia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to whom? Gentiles. Gentiles. So what you have here is a statement at the end of this journey They've come back, they've completed what God had sent them out to do. So everything between that, then, is important to know about this first journey that we have recorded. Their first stop is on Cyprus. And in verse 5, it says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. Where? In the Jewish synagogues. They're going to the Gentiles, but they start with the Jewish community first. At the end of their time in Cyprus, if you jump over to verse 12, they've had this encounter with Sergius Paulus, who is a proconsul, a a Gentile leader on Cyprus, who comes to faith. Verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now again, we don't have time to go into the whole thing, But in the course of his conversation with Sergius Paulus, there's um, our Jesus or Elmas, a sorcerer who tries to dissuade or get in the way of Sergius Paulus believing. And basically, God through Paul makes him blind for a period of time. And Sergius Paulus sees this happen, and that's what it's referring to. He saw what happened, he believed, but it says, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So he sees the miracle, but it's the word of God that seems to be what is most persuasive to him and he, he believes. From there, they travel up to Pisidian Antioch. They get to a synagogue there on the Sabbath. Paul preaches in the synagogue. And he's addressing uh, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who are familiar with the Torah. And so he goes through some high points of the history of Israel, In verse 23, he talks about the descendants of David and Jesse. And verse 23, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Yeshua, as he promised. So now again, same thing that we saw Peter doing. God has fulfilled what he promised, what we know about from our history, in the person of Yeshua. And it's through him we have salvation. So the same message of salvation Peter was preaching to the Jews, He's now, Paul is uh, now teaching to the Jews in Pisidian and Antioch and the God-fearing Gentiles. So consistency there. And then in verse 32, we tell you the good news what God promised our ancestors he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Yeshua. And again, the reference to uh, Yeshua being the son of the father. And then 38, he's still preaching. He says, I I want you to know that through Yeshua, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So then we get down to the the end of their time, and Paul and Barnabas are asked to come back and preach again. In um, In verse 44, on the next Sabbath, it says, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Yeah, and it's it's preaching what about the Messiah that they this is new information (laughs) it's revealing to them that they yeah so there was some jealousy there. Verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it, do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. Skip down to 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Verse 49. This was still part of his plan. Yeah. And it's important to realize Gentiles are believing now, but not all Gentiles. Jews are still believing also, just not all of them. So now, again, just like we saw in Jerusalem, there are some Jews who accept and some Jews who reject. It's a process of unfolding. Um, but then we get to Iconium, verse uh, chapter 14, and Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, verse 1, where they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So Yeshua is the one who told them in Acts 1-8, to preach about the kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. And now they're in the remotest parts of the earth <laughs> relative to Jerusalem. <laughs> and Jews and Gentiles are responding to the message of salvation. Uh, if we keep going, verse 2 But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do what? Miraculous signs and wonders. Again, it's always attributing this power for miracles to God. It's not the disciples. Mm-hmm. But And it's always the word of the Lord that is going forth also. So it is, it's different. It's, it's the same pattern of Yeshua's ministry, but it's also different. Yeshua himself was the one who healed because he was also God. Here it is, the disciples uh, in the name of Yeshua. But what we see happening here is the the answer to the prayer in chapter 4, isn't it? Speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So again, I think Luke is highlighting this to make clear this pattern, that it is God's plan that's going forth that now the the Jews and the Gentiles are responding to. Because remember, too, in the first century, the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And for pretty good reason, based on their history. But now the message of salvation is going out to both. And they're embracing it. Verse 7 They're continuing to go out. They're continuing to preach the good news. Now we get to Lystra, verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. The man at the temple, lame from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him. You remember what Peter said to the lame man? Look at me. Yeah, look at me. Uh Uh-huh. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, it's a little bit hard, I think, to to pick this up in the English translation. But if you look at the the Greek construction in this passage here and in the one that we looked at in chapter 3, this description of the man... um, who is told to stand on his feet, who, get, who jumps up and begins to walk. It's not unusual, as we look through miracles that occur throughout the Gospels and in Acts, it's not unusual that someone would command somebody to be healed and then they would get up and walk. But in this case, in both in chapter 3 and here, there's this added element of the man leaping <laughs> when he gets up and walks. Again, I think this is a way of emphasizing the same kind of miracle that was confirming the salvation in the Jewish community is now confirmation to salvation going out in the Gentile community. And this is really significant because the word of the Lord, which had been distinctly for the people of Israel all through the Old Testament, now is being opened up It is still for the Jewish people, but now salvation is extending to the Gentiles. So the word that had been reserved specifically to Israel and has come through the Jewish people, now in Yeshua, salvation is being made to all people, just as God promised to who? Abraham, who was Abram at the time. In order for him to be a blessing to the nations, salvation needs to be to the nations, which means the word of God needs to be proclaimed to the nations. This is marking a new era in salvation history, in human history. So it's significant that this kind of parallel is happening, that we're seeing similar, similar things happen to confirm that this is the word of God, this is his plan unfolding. And then, in verse 11, look what happened. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. <laughs> What's going on here? they what they got quite a few around them. they got quite around yeah. But what they see happen is this man who was crippled from birth, now getting up, walking, and leaping around, and they again think it is Paul and Barnabas. Mm -hmm. Not that different than the Jewish community, right, who also were at first confused, whose power is causing this miracle to happen. And in this context, though, they do have a pantheon. They've got a bunch of other gods. And so what they think is the gods are among them. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was outside of the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Where did they get that from? Get what from? No sacrifices. But they have It's Ooh. not unusual in, in, um, throughout history, really. Any kind of worship would involve sacrifices of different kinds, I think. Um, I I, don't, I couldn't tell you people group to people group what that would look like. But it wasn't so uncommon. Yeah. Then verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd. Now why would they tear their clothes? It's a very Jewish thing to express grief. They are... Horrified that they are being mistaken for gods, and here they've come to proclaim the one true God, and now they're being misunderstood as being gods themselves. This is this is an action of mourning and grief, and um. Who did that? and David, I think. Yes. Ashes and tearing the clothes in grief. The his died. So they rush out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. So again, he's starting with a question very similar to what Peter did. Men of Israel, what are you thinking? What are you doing? And then he says, We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to do what? Turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. The creator of heaven and earth. Yes, and I know it's been a few weeks weeks ago now, but when we looked in Jeremiah chapter ten, we saw this same the same uh, the same term being used. The term in Greek for the worthless things or vain things. If you look in the Greek Old Testament in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is referring to the same vain things that the nations believe in and do. And in that context it referred to idolatry or idols or both. In this context I think it's referring to the same thing. To turn from these worthless things, these acts of worship worshiping gods that are only so-called gods, Mm -hmm. Zeus and Hermes Turn from those things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And then in verse 18, even with these words, they have difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. But there are a couple of things I wanted to point out related to this, really, a short speech by Paul and Barnabas. One, like I was saying, even though this audience wouldn't have known really anything about the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, they wouldn't have known the reference to Jeremiah 10. But I do think that that provides a theological basis for Paul and for Barnabas, as now they're preaching people to people who are idolaters. Just as Jeremiah was preaching to Israel to resist the idolatry of the nations, now he is facing idolatry in the nations and it's the same message that he's bringing. Turn from these worthless, vain things to the God who created all things. And again it's this contrast between the living God who is the source and sustainer of all things of the creator versus these idols or so-called gods that can do nothing. They make the truth. and so i think this is an appeal to again the fact that the creator of all things is the lord is god of all things and he has chosen israel in the midst of that to entrust his word to and to show by his actions who he is in a relationship remember we talked in the last couple of weeks at how in in the prophets and in the psalms the writings we see this an intimacy of relationship that God desires with his people, that he cares about his people, and he is powerful to bring about his plans. It's the same God now that Paul is preaching to the Gentiles and appealing to the fact that he is God over all things. So Paul's exhortation for the people to turn from idolatry to the living God indicates a significant step in that process of coming to salvation. The the term here, turn or return, occurs often in the Greek Old Testament, and it can refer to either a physical turning, spatial turning, or a spiritual turning, either to God or away from God, or to idols or away from idols. So turning is part of repentance. Um, And we see... In the past, in the last few weeks, we've looked at Deuteronomy 4, and out of that chapter in verse 39, it says, acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. And that phrase, take to heart, um, again, if we looked at the, the Greek behind this translation, the English trans- translation, it has that idea of turn or return in your understanding, That's how we're translating, take to heart. Turn in your understanding or return in your understanding this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. And the point is, there is no other. Then when we look at Isaiah 45, another passage that we've looked at in the past, it says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So again, this idea of God as creator of heaven and earth is to emphasize the fact that he alone is God, and he alone is worthy of our worship. When Paul describes God in this speech, he starts off by saying that he is the living God, not surprising to us, right, in light of dead idols, who made heaven and earth and and everything in them. Then he goes on to say that, um, and, and actually this is the, the verse that's even closer in wording to Exodus 20 verse 11, where again in the context of the, of the Ten Commandments it is again a call to worship the one true God and turn from idols. Am I repeating myself a lot on this? It's for a reason. <laughs> when, he says, when he does that all the time it's like, hey, take notice exactly what I'm saying here and, and we learn that way. Mm-hmm. We, today, we have to several times Mm -hmm. to actually Mm -hmm. let it sink in, meditate on it, reflect on it. So Paul is calling the people of Lystra here to worship the Lord just as God commanded the people of Israel to worship him alone, not so-called gods or idols. So Paul is bearing witness to the Gentiles that the living God whom he serves is the only true God. And the description of God's creator um, asserts that all people, including the people of Lystra, owe him this worship. So when we go on to see what he says from there, he says, yet he has not left, well, he says, "in in the past, he, God, let the nations go their own way. Now, there's a couple of ways that, that this idea has been understood. On a positive note, this idea of letting the nations go their own way, one scholar suggests that the statement indicates that God respects the decisions of those whom he has created. And that there are other places in where these words allowed and and way have been used positively. So it's, rather than understanding this verse to mean that God allowed the nations to go astray or get lost, which would be kind of a negative sense, that it should be understood to mean that God allowed them freedom to explore and experiment with regard to lifestyle and perception of reality. That's one option. (laughs) On the other hand, as we do like Another author asserts, since in biblical teaching, this is a quote, since in biblical teaching, God's involvement in the life of Israel was for blessing and salvation, God's abandonment of the nations to go their own ways was a curse and an anticipation of final judgment. So this scholar is taking a more negative view and saying, you know what, God chose the people of Israel, which means he rejected the nations, and that this allowing them to go their own way was basically, okay, go your own way. It's going to lead to judgment. You know, that's a sad thought, because if he did (laughs) that to him, that often broke Uh that. If that actually happened to him, he'd have a different perception. If God actually let him go his own way, that scared me to go there. We just (laughs) thought Now, thankfully, there's not just those two options. And Daryl Bach, some of you may be familiar with him, he suggests a more moderate view. And he suggests that this verb permitted speaks of God's just lack of direct, active spiritual engagement with the nations. So there's no special revelation to the nations, as Paul is giving now, although there were general revelation and care. So he would say, you know, it's, it's more that in contrast to God's direct involvement with Israel... He's not directly involved. Well, when I looked at at this verb that's used, where else it's used in Acts, it's kind of an interesting uh, study to do. We won't won't go into a lot of detail because, oops, it's already 8 o'clock. But there are instances in Acts where this uh, verb is used to indicate that, let me see, Um, it it expresses that the intended actions of a person or people are either permitted or hindered by the action of another person or a divine agent. So let me give you just a couple of examples, and, and they'll be recognizable. In Acts 16, 7, the disciples try to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Yeshua does not permit them to do so. So they were going to go to minister in Bithynia, the Holy Spirit didn't allow them to do that. Paul wanted to go into the crowds, but the disciples would not allow him to do so. So his intent was to go there, but they had the ability to stop him. I think that gives us some context for understanding what's going on here. God has the ability as creator of all things to prevent the nations from going in other directions, meaning away from him, but he allows them to go. For a period of time. Because this is another key uh, note to observe. In the past, he let the nations go their own way. So there indicates some sense of history. And that period, God allowed them to go their way. But now things are changing. He says, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So what he is saying here is that God has left witnesses to who he is, even for the Gentiles, even for the nations. And in the Old Testament, we see this idea of a witness or a testimony being presented to the people of Israel as reminders of who God is, And often in the context of, so don't follow the idols. The tabernacle is referred to as the tabernacle or the tent of testimony. The Ten Commandments are a testimony. Even in the ark, there are three items that are to be a testimony or a witness to God. Again, it's to remind the people of Israel of God's covenant with him, to remind them of who he is so that they will stay aligned with him and not turn away. So I think what what we see happening here is Paul is saying that God has shown his kindness as a testimony to the nations by providing these things for him for them food satisfying their hearts with kindness even though they don't acknowledge him. Now this is radically different than the perspective of deity at this time. And I'll just just give you a little a uh, little example. There is a a poem which is a story that is situated in this region of Lystra and Derby, dated a long time ago. And it is a story about the gods um, Zeus and Hermes actually coming in human form among the community of people here in this region. And the way this tale goes. They're disguised in human form, and people reject. They go looking for hospitality door-to-door, and they're rejected by a thousand homes or something like that, until they get to this old elderly couple who takes them in. They're poor, but they feed whatever they have to these two gods in human form. And they notice that as they're feeding these strangers that the food replenishes in the bowl, And the drink that they're serving replenishes in the pitcher. And then eventually the gods reveal themselves and tell this couple we're going to wipe out everybody else in the valley because everybody else rejected us. But you, you get to be our servants. And then when you die, you will be worshipped. Now what you have going on here is a perception of deity that you have to perform a certain way for the gods or you'll be wiped out. Here Paul is saying God in his kindness is feeding you and providing for you. So I think what, what we've got here is just... a, a kind of, It's Torah 101, is the way I think of it, for Gentiles. Paul is beginning to reveal to them, explain to them who the God of Israel is by revealing him as creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things... He alone is worthy of their worship. And now what we see is that Paul and Barnabas, as Jewish believers, are proclaiming the word of God to Gentile audiences. And if we have the time to go into Acts 17, that's even more explicitly stated, that Paul says that we are proclaiming to you now the word of God. So in the past, the Gentiles were not held as accountable as the the Israelites were because they had God's word. But they they were held accountable because there was revelation of who God is. God left the testimony to the Gentile nation. And we see Gentiles attaching themselves to the people of Israel all through their history. And Rahab is a wonderful example of a Gentile who, based on the revelation she had of the God of Israel put her faith in that God and attached herself to the people of Israel which shows that God's testimony was sufficient for the nations yet they turned and went their own ways to some degree or another. Again, not, not all but, but most of them but now now the word has become flesh and dwelt among us and the believers are now preaching the word in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and in most parts of the earth. It's more of a tangible And now we have the Holy Spirit within us, even though Yeshua has returned to the right hand of the Father, and is no longer walking the face of the earth in the same form that he did in the first century. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us now. And we are God's representatives, his ambassadors, to take his word to the nations. And we need to conclude. So just a couple of of questions to reflect on um, in light of all of this is how important is it then for us as believers to be proclaiming the message of salvation to the nation? And are there other gods or so-called gods or even rulers that we would look to to provide for us a sense of peace, to satisfy our hearts? to put food on our table? Or are we recognizing that the creator of all things is the one who ultimately provides those things for us? Something I've been thinking about a lot with the elections coming up is, where am I putting my hope? Where am I putting my trust? If not in God, I think we're all in a world of hurt. <laughs> Let me pray for us so we can go. Lord, thank you that you are loving, that you are good, that you are patient, that you have a plan, and you are unfolding your plan, and we are a part of it as your people. Lord, I pray that you would give us your words to say uh, to those around us who need salvation. And Lord, help each of us to understand more fully what it means for us to have salvation, to experience the fullness of life that you provide and only you provide. Lord, this is a, a broken world, and it, it's hard sometimes to keep our focus on you, but I pray that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us and give us boldness to proclaim your word and to live out your word in our lives. We thank you and praise you and Jesus' name. Amen.